This is the Virgin Radio Pridecast with Alex Milsom and Shivani Dave. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Virgin Radio Pridecast with me, Shivani Dave. And with me, Alex Milsom. Hello. Hello, how are you doing? I'm okay, thank you. What about yourself? How are you getting on? I am climbing the walls because I've not been able to leave my house for so long I can't even remember how long it's been. Oh, it gets like that sometimes. I do remember that over Christmas last year. I do not envy you. I hope you're doing all right. How's the sense of taste? How's the sense of smell? Baby, you know I've always got good taste. <laughs> do you get it? Like, taste? <laughs> yes, I do. Okay. We can insert some, like, generic laughter soundtrack there, right? Let's yeah. do that. Let's do um, that. There we are. Well, I'm glad you're doing okay. I'm glad you're good too. Now, some of you will be aware that this coming Wednesday is World AIDS Day. You might have even seen some people walking around with red ribbons, which are the universal symbol for awareness and support for people living with HIV. And with so many people talking about HIV over the summer on Virgin Radio Pride, we wanted to dedicate the next couple of episodes of the podcast to World AIDS Day and the continued fight against HIV and the stigma surrounding it. Before we start, we did want to mention that obviously some of the topics we'll be talking about over the next couple of weeks will be upsetting. But these are really important conversations that we need to be having. So we'd urge you, if you can, to keep listening. Nowadays, we're lucky to have developed medication, which means that people diagnosed with HIV can live normal lives and with normal life expectancies. But, of course, it hasn't always been like this. In fact, it was only 40 years ago, in 1981, that the first cases of what was then termed gay-related immune deficiency were identified in the US. And by the end of 1984, 48 people had died here in the UK. Obviously, neither of us were alive in the 80s, but let's have a listen to someone who lived through the early stages of the crisis. Here's Lord Michael Cashman chatting to Steve Denyer on my private playlist about his experiences of the time. A change in subject. We touched on this a moment ago when you said about the arrival of HIV and AIDS in the 80s. Of course, anyone who's seen It's a Sin recently has revisited that whole era. But what what was it like? I mean, I can only imagine how frightening it was in the beginning um, with this issue just creeping upon you and you weren't quite sure, you know, what to do to avoid it. And there was kind of all the different reports in the press. I mean, what was it like? Uh, it felt frightening. But interestingly, I think as... as Gay men, we lived with so many fears, uh, so many threats, physical, uh, 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 and so dealing with another, which was probably our reason for kind of trying to edge it sideways, dealing with another was just what life threw at you because people must, they must be reminded that you could lose your housing, you could be sacked, you could, people could just ask you to leave the restaurant. Mm-hmm. But, ban you from a pub. There was absolutely no prevention of discrimination. So when AIDS and HIV came along, I think there was the early denial. Um, And Paul and I then had an open relationship and then very quickly we had to redefine that Um, because the first primary part of the relationship was that you do not put one another uh, at threat as my old friend Ken Parry, no longer with us sadly, wonderful camp actor, 
used to say, now you see dear, I've come into my own now, as you know I'm very good on the phone, he said to her, I got a lot of phone sex, it's the safest sex ever dear, and you don't have to buy them a coffee afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 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 But seriously, that you had to think of other ways of having sex um, and, and knowing that if you didn't have protected sex, a bit like the pandemic, you put yourself, if you didn't protect yourself, you put yourself at risk and you put others, but then it was a death sentence. Mm. I love the fact that in that clip, like, obviously, it's a very tragic time for so many people. But what Michael's doing is trying to deal with that situation with a bit of humour. That talk about not having to buy a cup of coffee after, you know, having sort of creative sex with someone. I think it kind of just shows that our community is so resilient and we always try and find like some sort of positive or humorous angle to what we're going through. Honestly, you took the words out of my mouth. That resilience, that whole standing up for yourselves. I I, I mean... Lord Cashman made the comparisons comparisons himself of the difference between HIV and the pandemic that we're we're living in. You know, this was this was a few months back, so it's a little bit of a different time. But it was really interesting to see that parallel of where in the UK we've got those really strong public health information campaigns to protect yourself from coronavirus. Meanwhile, in the 80s, people had to work out ways of protecting themselves. They had to create their own ways of protecting themselves. They had to do their own research because they're just wasn't that level of interest it was like state level discrimination of people not really caring because as as we said at the beginning of the clip gay related immune disease yeah that that phrase that terminology that was used to describe the virus is so bleak Mm. it kind of really makes it clear so starkly how much they just didn't care um it's such a it's such a hard thing to listen back to as well because these are the people who sort of fought for our community to have the rights that we do have and <laughs> they're going through this horrible epidemic and nobody seems to be paying attention nobody seems to be listening to them or mm. wanting to help like why do you think that there was so little interest was it because, you know, it seemed to target gay men? You hit the nail on the head. It only, only, it only targeted gay men. And that's why no one really cared. This is a point when the newspapers were so angry about a small gay kiss, you know, on EastEnders. We hear about that. We heard about that this entire station. We talk about it on our podcast. That's the sort of level of discrimination that existed. And although it's not an easy world we live in now, it does really hammer home the differences of the world that we kind of have inherited. Yeah, I guess it kind of makes me realise like how much of fighting for our community has to come from within. Like nobody's Mm going to be giving us a handout. Nobody's going to be, you know, supporting us on that level unless the drive and, and the fire comes from our community. But like, Saying that, even in the clip, Michael touches on the threats that were made to the gay community at the time. But these threats were also often extended to those outside of our community, the ones who tried to help, the allies. 
The amazing Ruth Coker Burks was one of those incredible allies. And in fact, she was one of the only people willing to care for AIDS victims when she began to do so in 1986. She tells her full story in her fantastic book, All the Young Men. But have a listen now to what she had to say to Matt Cain on his Sunday roast on Virgin Radio Pride. Could I start by asking you, where do you think your sense of allyship originally came from? Why, why did you feel such an affinity with the gay community? Because they were human beings, just like I am. And, um, you know, to watch another human being being humiliated or tortured or anything like that, I just can't take it. I just can't take it. And so that's where it comes from. And you you um, talk about how you put this allyship into action in your book, All the Young Men. Um, you talk about all your experiences working with AIDS patients at this horrific time. This must have had a huge impact on your life and shaped who you are as a person. Well, I, you know, I did what everybody else should have done but didn't do. And I've never understood, I've never understood people not pitching in and doing what they can do to help someone else. Although, as you say, allyship was very rare in those days. Other people just weren't helping us in the way no. that we needed help at the time. No, there was, there, were no, there was no one that I could find. And trust me, I had the word out everywhere. I was begging for help, begging for help. I had people that were just dying left and right and I could not get one person to help me. And as well as not being able to get them to help you, did anyone warn you against mixing with us, becoming too involved with our community? Oh, yes, absolutely. I ended up being the face of the gay community to the straight people, and I didn't know that there, I didn't know there was a them or us. Uh, kind of attitude you know and uh i just it always been us you know to me growing up and uh i don't it was just a strange time and now you know people run to help but back then they ran away you know ruth is like a real life Jill from It's a Sin, do you not think? Yeah, I totally agree. I absolutely loved Jill and I'm now just fully obsessed with Ruth. Oh my goodness. Like, obviously, there weren't many people that were willing to do that for our community. There weren't many people that were willing to, you know, accept the discrimination from outside. And Ruth says in the clip, you know, about kind of being the face outward of of the LGBTQ plus community, I just find that so interesting that because she was helping people in our community, she was completely like ostracized from her community. Yeah, which is so wild to think, but also, you know, if I got a choice as to which community I'd want to be a part of, it's definitely this one. (laughs) I think think there's also such a stark difference. Like imagine if, that was happening now and doctors and nurses and and people in the medical profession were like actively discriminating against you because of your sexuality like growing up when we did it seems like that kind of thing is well first of all it's illegal at least in this country and second of all it feels like it's kind of impossible like it doesn't feel like it would happen but this is living memory this is like what a lot of people had to live through and go through 
I, I can't even, I, it, it feels so bizarre as a concept for, for you and I in today's day and age. I mean, there is still that them and us sort of attitude to some people towards the community, but it's just not a kind of systemic state level medical professionals saying this. It's just all of these institutions that are designed to protect us completely ostracized LGBTQ plus people. Yeah, it was sort of like we were just brushed under the carpet like a problem that would go away if you if you closed your eyes and turned away long enough. And I think it's so important to have some of that understanding from the older people of our community who lived through that period of time and survived and listen to their experiences because there's such a a wealth of experience that they had that like doesn't translate to what we're going through now and Mm -hmm. it's so important that we learn from it and you know going through that would have been so tough and you know I would go probably as far as to say potentially it would have been impossible if it wasn't for the allies or at the very least it would have been significantly significantly delayed when you think about the sort of the people willing to to push push other people into accepting us i just it it's still it's it, it's actually when you start to like look at it's a sin and, and not think of it as a drama but actually think of it as a, a real life sort of depiction yes sure it is a drama but it was a depiction of what people were actually experiencing at the time when you hear about roof's experiences actually at the time you it, can like map it you can map yeah. it onto that and it's one of those things where like now if we look at sort of you know uh the way that trans people are being treated in society and in the media and things like that you know it's really tough as a trans person to to try and fix that you know mm-hmm. and there are lots of trans people who are trying to you know correct the the misconceptions about the community and stuff but if it wasn't for the allies that trans people have it would be nearly impossible to get any sort of change happening you know if it wasn't for the cisgender lgb people who are helping fight and and helping you know correct all of these uh, ideas of trans people that are just frankly wrong and if it wasn't for you know straight cis allies who are also trying to support the community no change would happen it's that personal risk that people are willing to to take as well you know people can be I don't want to use the word ostracized again. It feels like that was my word of the day earlier today. But, you know, it is that that case of, of people willing to get themselves either like their their views frowned upon or, you know, be ostracized because they're just standing up for people. I think that that separation we see between gay and straight communities. And yes, there was so much of a push from inside our community of, of protests and constant activism to try and get our status recognized i think that we can't underestimate the incredible nature of when people like her like ruth allies were willing to risk everything to speak out yeah it reminds me of the time princess anna was shaking hands with aids patients in the late 80s and two other people who remember that moment are the unlikely friends gareth thomas and h from steps here have a listen the images that stick in my mind were of yeah, the tombstones, yeah. you know, and the icebergs, those adverts. But then afterwards, the the light that shone so brightly um, on all of us and the community was 
Lady Diana. Yeah. You know, when yeah. she did yeah, those things, moment. those moments. And I, and I know that you know Harry now, but yeah. he, I love that he's, you know, the, the mantle has been passed yeah. on and he is, you know, holding that torch yeah, as well. Yeah. I think what's so weird about that clip is that, like, we weren't alive when that footage was taken, but that video almost, like, went viral before the days of going viral. Everyone saw that clip. Yeah, it's, it is really interesting that it's it's had that sort of impact. And it, it, it's proof that it was a really, really poignant and powerful moment. For sure. When, you know, there are people are our age that are aware of the clip and it's not taught in schools. It's <laughs> Let's not even go there and what is and isn't taught in schools. But it's not taught in schools. And yet here we are fully aware of that moment because it was so monumental. So massive. And I think what's going on there is like, it was somebody who represented, you know, the upper echelons of society. Mm. Somebody who represented the mainstream. You couldn't find many people who'd have a bad thing to say about Princess Diana. And this person who was sort of always like seemingly squeaky clean and 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 not necessarily in any way anything to do with the LGBTQ plus community was basically just there like, oh, these people have hearts. Everyone needs to be paying attention to these people with their hearts and their feelings and their emotions and, and what they're going through in this crisis. And it almost like sort of bridged that gap between, you know, probably the 99% of the population at the time who probably had the attitude that they didn't know anyone gay and, and HIV AIDS was all a bit of a myth to them at the time because they didn't know enough about it it kind of bridged that gap to sort of show that it is real. Yeah, that was an idol to so many people who, as someone who actually knew about, you know, transmission and knew that it didn't present a risk to her. You know, for someone of that, I'm going to use big air quotes here, for someone of that calibre to be putting themselves on the line and being willing to shake the hands of HIV positive patients was huge. I think it's moments like that that sort of change the perception for the vast majority of the population, you know, the the straight population that weren't aware of, or at least weren't aware to the extent of which the HIV AIDS crisis was absolutely desecrating our community. And I think it was sort of one of those turning moments where things started to change, awareness for the community started to change, support started to change. And, you know, at the end of the day, that was, that that's a credit to what some of our allies have done for the community. Mm-hmm. But none of that would have happened if it wasn't for the fight from within. Yeah, of course. Of course. In mm-hmm. a little while, we're going to be speaking to somebody who was himself visited by Princess Diana in hospital at the time. That's right. His name is George Hodson and he has the most incredible story. We'll find out more about it straight after your Virgin Radio Pride weekly update with Daryl. Hello. First this week... <laughs> Britney Spears has seemingly announced she will be in a new film. It comes only weeks after Britney was freed by a Los Angeles judge from her nearly 14-year-long conservatorship, the arrangement that governed her financial and personal affairs. 
Now, Queen guitarist Brian May has blasted the Brit Awards for binning gendered categories in a bizarre rant against what he called woke cancel culture. Organisers say the move is a small but seismic way of ensuring artists of all genders are celebrated. He told The Sun that Queen would be forced to be diverse if remade today, though he seemed to forget that Queen was led by Freddie Mercury, a queer man born in Zanzibar to Indian parents. Now, talking of Freddie Mercury, Chief Executive of the National AIDS Trust, Deborah Gold, says him going public with his HIV diagnosis before he died was a cultural touchstone moment. On November the 24th, 1991, the flamboyant and charismatic frontman died aged 45 after suffering with pneumonia resulting from AIDS. Freddie Mercury has really had a kind of lasting legacy. He's one of a small handful of people that is truly enormously internationally well known. His death had a huge impact. When those moments happen, it's possible to kind of grab hold of them and use them to, for something else. And I think, you know, the other members of Queen and members of, you know, kind of his friends and things really did that. And finally for this week, Sir Elton John's going to play two special homecoming shows at Watford Football Stadium next year. He's announced a concerts at Vicarage Road on the 3rd and 4th of July as part of his farewell Yellow Brick Road tour. I'll have more next week. Thanks, Daryl. Now, in case you haven't noticed the youthfulness of our voices, myself and Alex weren't alive during the early stages of the HIV AIDS crisis in the 80s. But we wanted to speak to someone who was, and we are absolutely honoured to say that George Hodson is on the phone right now. George, you were living in San Francisco (laughs) when the first cases of HIV were reported in 1981. Can you tell me a little bit like what that was like? Well, you know, I'd always dreamed of wanting to go to San Francisco and experience a chance of living in a majority society rather than minority where we could create a, a queer sort of utopia, really. So... I rushed off and uh, took two years there, Giovanni, and it really was the most wonderful experience because as a little Englishman, I never really felt queer or gay or anything. It, it, it was so, you go in a bar and suddenly you could be gay. I wanted to be gay, queer all the time. And this seemed to me an opportunity to do that. So I took the risk and sold my flat and went and lived there for two years and took part in the wonderful world of, uh, of of living in a queer majority where we could live and be ourselves for the first time, really. That and, sounds um, so fun. It was such a lot of fun, Shivani. I cannot tell you how much fun I, we all had. We danced and we did everything wicked and naughty and we we had no shame, we had no guilt. We just were ourselves. We were just out proud, loud, and in control, and there was no one there to tell us what and how to be ourselves. We just worked it out for ourselves in a community, and it was, I love community, and it was the best community, and it made me who I am today. I'm still an old hippie. You know, at 73, I'm still, those two years were so formative for me. It laid down the foundations of who and what I am today, Shivani, but Sadly, as we all know historically, as we were celebrating in our cathedrals of the bathhouses, we were actually unknowingly, strangely sort of killing each other, which is one of the world's most awful paradoxes that we were passing the virus on to each other. 
and the sheer glory of it turned into the sheer horror of what was to come later. The last year I was there, um, there was a story going around that a group had come down from San Francisco to LA, gay men, to a sort of orgy, and they'd come back, and several of them were showing these purple lesions and bad coughs, and it suddenly began that this could be some really difficult new disease that was coming. And then I remember one day just walking down Castro, and I stopped at the pharmacy there, and there was this Polaroid taped to the window, and on it, it was a close-up of a man's arm, and there was this purple-like lesion on his arm, and it said, anyone who has something like this, could you contact the Gay Men's Health Society? And of course, that was Carposis sarcoma, which is one of the first AIDS-defining illnesses. And it was like meeting one's nemesis. I, I, I shuddered, because Spiritually, I knew that this was a portent of something horrendous that was about to come. Uh, and indeed, it was, because that was yeah, the start of it all. And you then were diagnosed a little later on. What was that um, like for you? Um, well, I, I kind of, I was living in Thailand at that time, and I... You know, I guess that I must be HIV positive because, you know, I'd spent two years in the bathhouses and living the life of San Francisco, and it would be almost a miracle if I hadn't contracted it uh, with the life, sexual lifestyle I was leading. Not, not, not with any guilt or shame, but you know, it would have been pretty clear to me that I would have been positive, which I was indeed. It sounds like you had a a very adventurous life, but was there a sort of like panic at the time? Was there any sort of fear at the time? It was like meeting your nemesis. You know, I knew intuitively that this was something dreadful and it was something that was within me as well as all my brothers. And, you know, it was, yes, there, there was fear, but I don't like fear very much. So I try and turn fear into something else. There was a recognition that this might be something that would impact on my future life rather than fear, yeah? Because I yeah. believe fear is, fear is a crippling quality. And um, so I don't try and do fear too much, Alex. Of course, of course. Um, I mean, speaking honestly, I think it's difficult for younger members of the community like, you know, Shivani and myself to understand how vicious that stigma surrounding HIV was at the time. Could you tell me a little bit more about this? Uh, yeah, where do we begin with stigma? But yes, um, we were the perfect thing for people that hate and are nasty to bash, you know. We were just what they wanted, something that was, you know, queers and sex. It was all, it was the perfect recipe for people to, have a go at us and my god they did have a go at us mm. and it was really terrible at the height of the pandemic you know people were uh, the press people said we should be put on islands we were we were modern lepers 
even with amongst ourselves, we'd look and see if someone had a PCP cough, you know, and think, oh dear, oh gosh, you know, the stigma was everywhere. The fundamental religions, the right-wing press, they all banded on us and instead of, it's the worst of man, humankind, that people, just when you think people should gather like they have over COVID, they turned on us and turned us into these sort of lepers, you know, modern day lepers that instead of being kindly and that, there were guardian angels, but there were also devils who made mischief and horror out of our misfortune and turned us into these subhuman serves you right. Well, what would you expect being queer and having sex? It, it, it was a terrible time, Alex. And, um, the nasties really had a field day with us. Um, there's always going to, ever since cavemen, they've been nasties, but they kind of really use this as a stick to beat us further with you, yeah, just yeah. when you felt that you needed. And it was only when a certain woman crossed the road like a good Samaritan and picked us up out of the gutter, i.e. Diana, that things started to change. For years, we were, you know, packed and chased and, Yes, it was awful, awful stigma. And it still is. I mean, that's not, there is still a lot of stigma associated with being positive and having HIV. And um, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, it was. You're so, you're so right, George. Um, we, we heard, um, you know, H from Steps and Gareth Thomas talking about that moment Diana was shaking hands with patients who were HIV positive and, and sort of the way that that influenced a lot of people to sort of start to think about people who were positive with a different different light. Definitely, yeah. No, she was a good Samaritan. She crossed the road. We were in the gutter, yeah? And she literally picked us up and said, right, I know what you're going through. I know what it's like to be stigmatised, to be an outsider, to be everyone's pet hate. And yeah, she had a huge influence, and it's a horrible thing to say, but she made us from sort of hideous, frightening lepers into sort of fashionable creatures almost. I mean, that, it was weird to watch over a matter of a year. Suddenly, you know, everyone wanted to have someone with HIV AIDS on their arm, you know, rather than sort of run away from them or, or vilify or, yeah, so... Yeah, There's a lot I, talk about Diana, but she really was pivotal in, in challenging the stigma. Um, allies like Diana were so vital. Um, but but that's not to discredit anything that the gay community has done in, in order to fight for themselves when they were going through this crisis. And you yourself oh, no. have lived an extraordinary life. You've shown incredible strength. You've also got a sleeping dragon mentality. Um, could you expand <laughs> on that a little dragon. bit more? <laughs> That's copyrighted, that sleeping dragon. It's amazing my autobiography. <laughs> so, mark that down, Shivani. Um, I'll, no, I'll not steal it, don't you worry. No. Well, two things, Shivani. One, yes, of course, another sense of community was formed around HIV. We huddled together like those penguins in the Arctic, you know, when they all gathered together to keep warm. We were like that as a little band. We all tried to keep each other going. So there was a wonderful sense of community. And it, I'm a big fan of community that really 
I hadn't felt that sense of community since San Francisco. And then, of course, there were things like the London Lighthouse, which was formed by gay men, for gay men, to give us some dignity in death, a place where we could gather safely without being giggled at or ridiculed, where we could feel safe, where we could learn from with each other. And the London Lighthouse, which is largely forgotten, was a huge community project that was formed by largely by gay men, for gay men. And it, it, it really was very, very important for us to have that space where we could come and talk and exchange knowledge and information as it came along because it was coming at such a fast rate. New trials, new things, new coping mechanisms and sharing how each of us managed to deal with this. But for me to come to the point you're saying about sleeping, drugging, when I got my diagnosis, it was like a tsunami. You know, everything that I'd valued and held before was just smashed to pieces. You know, there was no way I was going to manage to manage on the way I'd lived my life before. So I had to start, like all of us at that point, to try and rebuild a new life, knowing that we were going to be dead soon, told that we were going to be dead soon, and live a life waiting to die, which there can't be many more difficult things to do than that, but that's how it was for each of us. And we'd wait, we'd see someone die around us, and a friend, and a lover, and it was the most awful way to do it. How I personally took it was like this. I thought, well, first of all, I'm not going to be afraid of it, I'm not going to be ashamed of it, and I'm going to try and work out a way of coexisting with it. That is an intellectual fact of my life. I am going to have this virus inside my body forever, probably. So I thought, I have to try and work out a new philosophy of life where I learn to find ways to keep myself alive, yeah? And the sleeping dragon concept was that I had this visualization that HIV virus was going to live inside me as a visualization of a dragon asleep. And that I had to reorganize my life, recreate things that would keep the dragon asleep because I saw other people doing things that woke the dragon and they died quickly. So that was my kind of personal philosophy. and. I therefore spent the next few years, as I was waiting to die, trying to keep Sleeping Dragon asleep. Mm. And that's how I started on my survival journal journey, really, Shivani, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally does. It totally does. And it's carried me not only 40 years, blessedly, through and still dragons asleep, and also had to battle for cancers as well which each time I've won you're extraordinary you really are not not only for managing to keep the dragon asleep for so long but for everything you've been been through and the fact that you keep continuing to sort of not just survive but George you are thriving yes I think so (laughs) I'm having yes it's been hell and beyond but I've tried to go beyond loss Shivani each time. I've tried to create a life that 
is as it is, without fear, without shame, true to myself, and trying just to take new opportunities to create a new persona, a new presentation for myself. I've discovered my creativity much more than I've always been creative, and I breed these little dogs, Griffons, that are asleep with me. I took, I decided that the best way to keep Dragon asleep was not to harbor on when my turn to die was going to come, but to try and just find ways to distract or displace my obvious thoughts all the time. And some folk just thought of nothing but death and dying. I thought, no, I'll start new. I call them absorptions, new things that I would attack and create that were things I'd always wanted to do but never done. And it was these absorptions that I felt kept Sleeping Dragon asleep because I was busy making collages or writing or photography or having these little dogs. And it was these absorptions, which is a sort of abstract word, really like hobby, that kept me from sitting in a pit thinking, oh, God, no, is this lump KS? Is this cough PCP? Here I go. It's my turn. It was like living in a waiting room and you watched all your friends getting up and walking through the door and never coming back. And you kept thinking, well, my turn must come. But do you know what, Shivani? It didn't and hasn't come. <laughs> what a lucky man I am. Yeah. <laughs> but I never forget the thousands and thousands that the sleeping dragon woke up and gobbled and destroyed cruelly and vilely and horribly. And, uh, and that's why I talk today, because I fear that we're forgetting about all those brothers and sisters that died horribly from this violent vicious virus and that World AIDS Day is coming up. And, you know, we must remember the sacrifices they gave because without their sacrifices, we wouldn't have ARTs, we wouldn't have PrEP and all that. And I fear that some of the younger queer community, people of difference, forget what those heroes did for us. Yeah. I have to ask you, from sort of like your perspective, you know, and you you, you mentioned that that gap, that that, that difference between a, a generational difference of younger generations mm. not having that shared memory, um, that shared experience mm. because they didn't live it. And that's, as I say, the same for Shivani and I. If there was that one message that you could give to a younger generation, what would it be? Learn your history. Study. Inform yourself. Talk to other folk. History is what makes a community strong. And HIV AIDS is such a huge part of our history. Celebrate and honor those of us that managed to survive and celebrate those that didn't survive. Have respect for us elders and just practice sexual health. Very important message there, George. Thank you so much for chatting to us. Thank you so much, George. That's unfortunately all we've got time for this week, but we'll be back next week with another episode to mark World AIDS Day. And next week we'll be looking forward to the latest stage of the epidemic and even to today where medical advancements have meant that people with HIV can live completely normal lives. 
Remember that if you'd like to get in touch about anything we've spoken about today, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us on pridecast at virginradio.co.uk or send us a tweet at Virgin Radio UK using hashtag Virgin Radio Pridecast. And we should also say that if you've been affected by any of the things we've discussed today, or if you'd just like to know more, there are plenty of fantastic charities and organisations which are there to help, and we'll link these in the show description. We'll leave you with one of my favourite clips from the whole run of Virgin Radio Pride. Despite so much loss and pain we've discussed today, I think this clip really sums up the incredible sense of solidarity which the gay community had at the time. Have a listen to Virgin Radio's very own Graham Norton chatting to Steve Denyer about a really special performance by Holly Johnson at Pride on Clapham Common in 1994. We'll see you next week. Okay, so Frankie goes to Hollywood. The power of love. This is this is this is a beautiful, beautiful song, isn't it? It's so powerful. The reason why I chose this song is because I was at a Pride, a London Pride, mm. and I think it was on Clapham Common. It was one of those really when London Pride was enormous when it was just like a massive, massive open air concert, and they got really big names, and it was one of those, and it was a beautiful day turning into a gorgeous night. And I must have started, I would think I was doing a bit of cub reporting, a little bit of reporting for Channel 4, I think I was. And they must have been doing a program about Pride and I was like their little stringer at the event. I remember I, I, um, I interviewed Chris Evans at the thing because he, right. was, he was just doing um, Big Breakfast. So he was a big star. Mm. So he was backstage in kind of the entertainment area, the hospitality area, because, you know, because all the big stars came. It was like, a, it was a big event. And uh, so I talked to him. And then I interviewed Holly Johnson. And at the time, and I hope, I don't think he'll mind me saying this, but he looked really ill. He he, you know, I, I was shocked when I met him. Um, and so I'm interviewing him thinking, wow, like, you seem so frail. And, you know, the, I, at that time you thought, there, I know how this story ends. Happily, that wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't the ending for Holly. But, mm. but at the time talking to him, I thought, this is only going one way. And he got up on stage and the sun was setting. And I'm sorry, I'm going to start to cry now. Um, but the sun was setting and fireworks were going off. And he sang this and the whole crowd was singing back at him. And it was just beautiful. And it really was the power of love. I mean, it really felt tangible in that moment, him singing to that crowd and them singing back to him. <laughs> 